I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. chapter 4 of Colossians, we're going to be reading verses 2 through 6. The word of our Lord from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Continue, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In the same way, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We pray that as Jesus invited us, that we would hear as you give us ears to hear. And may we live accordingly. In the name of Christ, your Son, amen. So a, a few years ago, I read a book titled Disruptive Witness. It's a book I think Catherine got and might have read by a guy named Alan Noble. He's a young guy at Oklahoma Baptist University. And honestly, it was an incredible book, a uh, wonderful book. And I've, I've actually begun reading it again, rereading it, because so much of what he has to say is so poignant for our times, um, living in the world as it currently is, and trying to be faithful to the gospel of Christ in a time such as the one in which we find ourselves. But um, uh, so not just because of that book, but really the, the, the idea comes from that book. Over these next three weeks, as we prepare for Check Us Out Sunday, we're going to be walking through this three-part series uh, that I'm titling, borrowing his phrase, Disruptive Witness. And so we begin here this morning in Colossians chapter 4 with Paul's admonition to do a number of things as he's drawing to the end of, of this epistle to the church at Colossae. And we'll get to the content of what Paul has to say in just a moment. But I want to begin with an image borrowed from Alan Noble in, uh, in his book, Disruptive Witness, but that he borrows from the gospel reading this morning in Luke. The parable of the sower or you might refer to it as the parable of the seed, or you might refer to it as the parable of the soils. Notice how well that alliterates. The sower, the seed, the soils. 
the parable is about those three things. And one of the things that, that, that Noble points out is we talk an awful lot about the condition of the soils, right? You've got the track or, or the road, the path, and it's just hard and the seed just falls to the ground as the sower maybe is getting his little satchel of seeds out. Some falls to the ground. The birds of the air just come and pluck it right up. Um, we talk about the rocky soil. You know, there's nowhere for, for the, uh, the roots to get down or for the seed to get down and establish some roots, a deep root system. We talk about the, uh, uh, the thorns and the thistles and all the cares of the world that choke out the life of that young, budding plant. And we talk about the good soil. But one of the things that we do to our peril is we take for granted the condition of goodness of that good soil. How did that soil get good? I mean, it's just always been good? It's just been sitting there good? Well, good soil requires a number of things. It requires dirt. It requires nutrients. It requires rainfall. It requires all sorts of things for it to be considered good soil. Just this last week, uh, Lindsay's parents came over and, and made a little day trip to see the kids, we know really to see Juniper because she's like the most famous one now. Um, I was telling her this morning that she is, she's probably the most kissed baby in all of the world. And, uh, and then just a couple minutes later, Jan walks over and kisses her right on the side of the head. I said, I told you, you're the most kissed baby in all of the world. Um, but they came over for a little day trip and he was wearing a t-shirt, Chris, that he got from the Homestead Convention a few weeks ago. And Lindsay told me that you were talking about that, and he got to talking about it with me. And one of the things he, he pointed out was that at the, it's a homesteading convention. David, I think it's in Nashville. Is that right, Lindsay? Columbia, Columbia right outside of Nashville. Um, but uh, he said that there was a speaker who was talking about the difference between soil and dirt. And he talked about how most of what we have in America is just dirt. It's not soil. Soil is something that is rich, that is highly nutritious, that, that you don't want to eat it, but you want to eat stuff that grows in it. And so as we're losing soil in our country, what do we do? We fertilize it. We use pesticides. We, use, we add all this stuff to it to try to make the dirt function as if it's soil. Uh, but one of the comments that, that the speaker apparently made was that uh, we based on what we currently have, we really only have a few decades of good, nutrient-rich soil in our country. We're going to have to do something about that. But I say all that to highlight the importance of good soil. Soil is good if it's nutrient-rich, if it's well-watered, if it is broken up. You know, you've, you've uh, maybe wanted to plant a garden before or maybe you just wanted to you know take an old old bucket uh, old potter potter that had some old dirt in it and it's all dried out and whatnot what do you do you you start breaking up that dirt that soil you start disrupting it 
in order for soil to be good soil, it's going to have to be disrupted. It's going to have to be disrupted by plowing, by tilling. It's going to have to, you're going to have to get the rocks out of it. You're going to have to pull some weeds maybe. Disruption is a good thing if our desire is to be good soil that's ready to bear fruit. So over these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this idea of disruptive witness. And we're going to be assessing ourselves. Who are we? How do our lives need to be disrupted? What, who are we becoming? We're going to be also assessing our neighbors, talking about the world in which we live as it currently is. What does it mean to live in a time such as ours, in a place such as ours? And we're going to be assessing also how we relate to our neighbors in a redemptive way in such a world as this. But this morning, I want us to to capture really kind of a general overview of whether we've yielded ourselves to the disruptive work of the Lord. His disruptive work in us, His disruptive work through us. Because we will never ourselves be disruptive witnesses in the world to our neighbors unless our lives themselves have been disrupted by the witness of the Lord to us. Paul begins this passage with an admonition, an urging, a command, a call, an invitation. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now elsewhere, he will invite us to pray continually. But here he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Inviting us to a continuance of prayer and to a steadfastness, a persistence, an endurance in prayer. But notice how he colors that invitation. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving being watchful in it with thanksgiving thanksgiving neither my wife nor my kids are allowed to answer this and if you know the answer Please don't shout it out. But I want to ask you a question. It's a grammatical question. I want you to think about it. What is the shortest complete sentence in the English language? Now don't shout it out. Don't say it. Think about that. What is the shortest complete sentence? Sentence. So it's got to be grammatically correct in the English language. Let that sit, sit with you for a moment. Let that sit with you. The shortest complete sentence in the English language. There was a hand up back there. Do, do you want to give it a shot? All right, I'm ready. 
Who? No. I'm sorry. A boy. Shortest complete sentence in the English language. Now, it is going to be pertinent to the, to the sermon. Yes. No. It is the sentence. You ready for it? Go. Go. One word. Two letters. Of course, you got to punctuate it properly. Put a period at the end or an exclamation mark at the end. But go. It is the shortest complete sentence in the English language. Because it is a verb. It's an action verb. Go. And its subject is implied. The understood you. Now, who remembers learning about the understood you back in grammar school? Yeah, the understood you. If you're, if you were uh, maybe answering a, a, a questioning grammar, you would give that understood you by putting the word you in parentheses at the beginning of the sentence. You go. Who go? You go. Shortest sentence in the English English language. Go. About our text here, I want to draw our attention to the understood you, but not the understood you in a, an English sense, Y-O-U, but the understood you in a Greek sense, E-U. You. The word thanksgiving is Eucharistia. It's where we get the word Eucharist, because the Eucharist, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, it is a feast of thanksgiving. It is a feast of gratefulness. In fact, in our liturgy, one of the things that we say is, it is always a good and proper thing for us to give thanks and we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, when he had Eucharistia, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And so this meal of remembrance, this meal in which we gather at the Lord's table and we receive from the Lord his meal. We celebrate his presence with thanksgiving. Paul tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. But that, that word, thanksgiving, it has with it an implied or an understood other you word. Thankfulness. You give thanks when you are thankful. Thanksgiving is not just lip service. It's not just something that we begrudgingly say. Well, I guess thank you. You know, somebody gives you a gift, and you're a child, and your parent says, what do we say? Thank you. Thanksgiving implies thankfulness, gratitude, 
appreciation. It is the understood you here. It literally, to give thanks, is the giving of blessing. And interestingly enough, thanksgiving is related to grace. And grace is a gift. In fact, the the Greek word for grace is literally the Greek word gift. Which makes when Paul says, we are saved by grace through faith, this is not of ourselves, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. He says, it is the gift of God. He's being redundant there. This grace is, of course, a gift. This charis is a charis. He's underscoring the nature of what grace is. It is God's gift to us. He gives us something that we don't deserve. He gives us something that we cannot earn, that we have never earned and never could earn. But gift giving, grace, in the Greco-Roman world, it was, in, in classic Greek literature, it was envisioned as three maidens. One maiden that gave a gift well. Another maiden that received a gift well. And a third maiden, because that's incomplete, just the two together. You know, that's just, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You know, it's, it's still self-serving. But that third maiden was a gift shared well. You give to me graciously, and I receive graciously. But it doesn't end there. I share graciously. There's that third movement. It's where we get the idea of passing it on or paying it forward. Grace. Paul calls us, continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't stop praying. Be persistent in your praying. But then he says, being watchful in your prayers, in your praying with thanksgiving. There's something about being thankful and something about giving thanks, those two activities together, receiving well and returning, sharing, responding well. Together, there's something about being thankful and giving thanks that shapes and guards and watches over our prayer lives. It shapes how we ought to pray. That's one of the reasons why we, every Sunday morning, pray the collect together. And it's always different. Sometimes we will, instead of praying the collect, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that He gave His disciples. And He gave it to them, not just as a model for prayer, but as a prayer itself. When you pray, say this. If we're not praying the Lord's Prayer, we're not praying rightly. But one of the reasons why we pray these scripted prayers together is because you and I don't know how to pray. Be honest about it. We do not know how to pray. 
Jesus' disciples, people closest to him, including Peter, James, and John's, his inner three. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples how to pray. God cares so much about how we pray that he literally gave us a book of prayers, the Psalms. And some of them are uncomfortable to pray. But if we're honest, we hear our own voices in them. God, where are you? How long are you going to let this happen to me? I hate my enemies. We hear our own voices in those prayers. But we hear also the voices of God, I trust only in you. Even when you seem distant, I know you're right there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet I know you have not left me. You've not abandoned me. He invites us to pray earnestly, steadfastly, unceasingly. Thanksgiving shapes how we ought to pray. If our prayers are not coupled with thanksgiving, they're incomplete. Paul says, watching over our prayers with thanksgiving. But thanksgiving also guards us from self-centeredness. It's hard to be self-centered if you're truly grateful. If you're truly giving thanks, receiving gladly and well and sharing gladly and well. It's awfully hard to be self-centered when you're truly thankful. And thanksgiving, guarding our prayers, guards us from our prayer lives being just about us and ours and what we want and what we have. And thanksgiving watches over our prayer lives to the extent that prayer is not just some empty exercise in inner mindfulness. Prayer is not just about trying to rid our, our inner lives of distractions and instead just focus and focus, no distractions. But actually, our prayer lives, as we are giving thanks become the center of our lives, a centering pattern in our lives, and therefore a catalyst out into the world and out into the lives of others. Yes, we pray in the prayer closet, but so that we can then leave the prayer closet. And so we go and we pray on the way, on the road, as it were. Which is why the Apostle Paul urges us elsewhere, pray without ceasing. Even in your interactions with others, pray. He invites us then, at the same time, pray also for us. I don't know about you, but... When I started realizing that 
Paul's writing his epistles not alone, not in isolation, but with others. And I started picking up on all this us language. I thought, wait a minute, what? He gives us a laundry list in the, the following verses of who this us is. Who's this us? A guy named Tychicus. Onesimus. Aristarchus. An easy name. Mark. Who is Mark? The cousin of Barnabas. Another strange name. And then a name we're familiar with, Jesus. But not that Jesus. This is a Jesus who's changed the name he goes by, probably out of honor. He goes by the name Justice. Not Justice, but Justice. Epaphras who seems to have been the, either the pastor or a messenger for the Colossians. But then he invokes the name of Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, who's not yet left him, but will leave him at some point, tragically. But Paul says, at the same time that you're praying, watching over your prayer life with thanksgiving, pray also for us. But why? Why pray for us? The Apostle Paul tells us immediately why. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Even in prison, the Apostle Paul's heart and life is being directed toward others. This mystery that he invokes is the mystery of all the ages, the Apostle Paul says. It is the secret that God has been keeping from the world till just the right time. And now he's springing it out in action on the world. He mentioned it first in chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. The Apostle Paul said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Remember, even in prison, the Apostle Paul's heart and life are being directed outward toward others. He's not sitting back wallowing in his misery, saying, this is unfair. Why is this happening to me? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Not for my sake, but for you. To make the word of God fully known. Here's that word. The mystery. Hidden for ages and generations. But now revealed to his saints. To them, that is to the saints. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. That is the nations of the earth. That is everybody outside of Israel. 
How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So the mystery involves all of the nations of the earth. But also, notice how he then qualifies what this mystery involves, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is your hope of glory? Not just that you'll get to heaven one day when you die. Praise the Lord, that'll happen. But you also won't stay there for all of eternity because he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But the hope of glory is Christ in you. In your life. Living in your heart. Residing in that temple. That is the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. My ESV says mature. It's the word perfect, complete, whole in Christ. Everything that Christ wants this person to be. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul invites us, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word. Notice Paul is in prison and his request is not that God would open up a door so that he can get out. God opened a, word, a, a door for the word to get out. To declare the mystery of Christ. Because it's for the sake of that mystery of Christ. Christ for the nations. Christ in the human heart. It is for that sake that the Apostle Paul says, I'm in prison. And so even in his prayers, sitting in prison, the Apostle Paul can give thanks. Because his life is being poured out for the sake of the world. For the sake of God's church. But then there's a second part that comes out of that first part. Paul's prayer requests that he's offering to the Colossians. Pray that God will open up a door for us to minister the word. But then also pray for me that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He wants to just speak clearly, plainly. I love John Wesley's um, idea of clear and plain English because if you've ever read a sermon by Wesley, you think, man, this is like a brilliant, educated, like kind of high-talking guy. But that was plain English to coal miners, <laughs> to uneducated poor folks. It always makes me think, man, I got a shoddy... Education, I, I can hardly read this. But Wesley was, was all about preaching the gospel in plain language to plain people. 
The Apostle Paul here says, pray for me that I may make this mystery, this, this secret that's been hidden from the world for all throughout the time of the world till just now. I want to make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's inviting them in, and then he's turning his attention back toward them and how they also are then to be living in the world in which God has placed them. He gives them further instructions. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Who are those outsiders? They are those who are lost and without hope. They are those who are not a part of who you are. And he says, walk in wisdom toward them. Be careful in how you live your life before them. Why? Because you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to make the best use of time. Don't just spend your time, the Apostle Paul is telling them. Invest your time. The Lord has entrusted time to you. It might be 80 years, it might be 100 years, it might only be 30 years. Tragically, it might be even less. But whatever that time is, invest it well. Walk in wisdom. Make the best use of it. Because there are plenty of outsiders. Folks, we live among outsiders every day of our lives. Almost every person you encounter on a daily best basis is an outsider in this sense. It used to not be so. Just 20 years ago it wasn't that. You remember that um, in his Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples, as you are going, disciple the nations. As you are going, go. We, we translate it as a command, go. That shortest complete sentence in the English language. But what Jesus actually says is, as you're going, because you've got a life to live, because you've got work to get to, because you've got homes to get to, you've got neighbors to get back to living among, as you're going, disciple the nations. Paul sees himself as going, even though he's in prison. He's in chains. But again, even in prison, his life is being directed outward. And so walking in wisdom, he then says, let your speech always be 
gracious. In that book of James that we just finished walking through last Sunday, you remember there was an awful lot about the tongue, about the mouth, about the way in which we use our words. It's not, it's not just James that harps on that. Paul does the same. Let your speech always be gracious. Be dripping with the grace of God. Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's Peter who in one of his epistles says that we are called by others to give an answer, a defense for the hope that we have within us. Paul here says that there are answers that we are to give to others. And he says, as our speech is always being gracious, always seasoned with salt, we may then know how we ought to answer each person. How we ought to respond to others. How we ought to interact with them. There's this give and take that's implied here. I'm curious. I want to ask another question that I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to just kind of let this one also sit with you. This is a little bit more of a serious question. When is the last time you had a disruptive conversation with someone who does not believe the gospel. A disruptive conversation. Not a mean, nasty, we're not, again, seasoned with salt, our words being gracious. But when is the last time you had a conversation with someone who is not a believer? in which you know they're not going to be able to shake that conversation for a while. Who is it? Is it Greg Kokel who talks about a pebble in the shoe? You know, our job is not to bludgeon people into the kingdom. You can't bludgeon someone into the kingdom. But what you can do is you can have conversations that work like a pebble in your shoe. David, you've had a pebble in your shoe before, right? It drives you crazy, doesn't it? It drives you so crazy that at some point you say, good grief, i got to get this shoe off and get that pebble out. When's the last time we had those sorts of conversations, disruptive ones, where God is using us as disruptive witnesses in the lives of others? Those sort of conversations that folks just can't get away from. Those haunting conversations type of conversation that might keep somebody up at night might call someone who doesn't believe in prayer to maybe utter a prayer if we're going to be disruptive witnesses ourselves 
I think the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear to us. Thankfulness, clarity, wisdom, and graciousness are indispensable. And that's the thing about thankfulness, clarity, wisdom, and graciousness is those aren't just like magically ours. They take time to develop. Like nutrient-rich soil. They take time to develop. They take processes and labor. I hope that this morning you will pray with me for the Lord to make us disruptive witnesses in the lives of others but that as he makes us that that he would first because this is indispensable that he would disruptively witness into our lives that he would disrupt what we've got going on in life that he would start turning over the soil in our own hearts For our sakes, yes, but also for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to do just that. Would you please stir up the soil of our own hearts, of our own lives, so that the seed of your word might be buried down deep within our soil for the sake of fruit, for the sake of the fruit of your kingdom, your kingdom likeness. Dis disrupt our lives, we pray, with the witness of your word, the witness of your spirit, so that we ourselves also might also be disruptive witness, witnesses to others. And we pray this for their sake and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.